0: We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. The Nonprofit Leadership Podcast is supported by First Republic Bank. With First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who will sit down and learn about you and your goals. You're then connected with specialists and solutions you may not have considered. Isn't it time you align yourself with a bank that believes in you and your future success? Learn more at firstrepublic.com member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology tools and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology, strategy, and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com NLP to learn more. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now's the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom-line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations. From creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you would like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com nonprofitinvesting. Again, that's amalgamatedbank.com nonprofitinvesting. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. When it comes to Habitat for Humanity, I think the first image that comes to many of our minds is Jimmy Carter swinging a hammer on a hot summer day as he's building a Habitat home with others. Well, President Carter certainly has been the face for Habitat for many years now. But what's behind this organization that consistently has one of the strongest nonprofit brands in the country? Well, my guest today is current CEO of Habitat for Humanity International, Jonathan Reckford. Jonathan has served in this role for 18 years now, and he's really guided the organization to new heights, both in terms of how many homes they've provided all over the world, but also in the realm of advocacy when it comes to housing affordability. Jonathan will share his leadership insights with us on a whole variety of topics, and he'll also give us the full scoop on what they did with Mackenzie Scott's recent $436 million gift. Now, before we get to the show, I just want to give another shout out to each one of you, uh, my listeners. I have so enjoyed hearing from many of you, and really, you're the reason this podcast is growing. So thanks for listening. I just want to say again, if you have suggestions for the show or ideas for guests, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email at nonprofitleadershippodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nonprofitleadershippodcast at gmail.com. All right, now on to the show. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Glad to be with you, Rob. Absolutely. Well, we're really glad to have you on the show. And this show is dedicated to nonprofit leaders, as you know. Um, and there's no doubt that in the face of America's dual public health and economic crises, many nonprofits have struggled to meet increased demands for services while also confronting decreased revenue and donations. Increase expenses, staffing shortages the list goes on. We could talk about the great reshuffle. There's just a lot of moving parts right now and nonprofits are really stuck right in the middle of that, I believe. So why don't you talk a bit about how you've been able to navigate through all of these challenges facing nonprofit organizations today because you lead one of the largest nonprofit organizations in the country. So I'd love to have you talk more about Habitat.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Rob. And it is first, you know, start on the bad news and then talk about some of the better news. I don't want to depress everyone. You know, I think COVID um, was unique for any of us. We have faced all sorts of man-made, natural disasters all across the U.S. and across the world, but we've never had the whole world impacted simultaneously. So, so I don't think anyone had uh, was under 100 years old had uh, had any context for this, and it was uh, it was really difficult, and we had to pivot pretty dramatically. I think to the heart of your question, the worst part is it exacerbated. Um, the economic divide that already existed so we already had this huge division of people with assets and without assets and suddenly covid kind of turbocharged that if you were a knowledge mm-hmm. worker who owned your home and had a stock portfolio there was a lot of negatives about covid but you're actually much richer at the end of covid than when you started yeah. and you were somewhat insulated from so many of the challenges if you're a service worker without assets covid was a catastrophe jobs yeah. went away your rent skyrocketed your cost of food went up and and your health uh, risk uh, skyrocketed as well so it really took existing trends and made them worse and i think the need for our services exploded as you say one you know minor bright spot but now we're in a more uncertain economic time is charitable giving went up and uh, and i think we certainly like many nonprofits, expected quick recession i think the counterintuitive part was that a lot of people as i mentioned uh, who had assets suddenly couldn't go travel, couldn't go out to eat, and perhaps saw the need and suffering out there. And so uh, we didn't expect it, but in fact, giving went up for us. I also think housing became more visible. So the issue mm. of housing yeah. may have been more visible as everybody was in their home or all wanting more real estate and thinking about what it meant to have a, a safe place to live to ride out a pandemic. So, but but what we have seen is is a huge stretch, and now. With a more uncertain economic time, again the need—it's it's countercyclical. The need goes up as resources potentially go down. There was also a huge amount of government spending that I think cushioned and uh, the the short term, but probably is is unsustainable. So it is. I think we're in a complex time for the next few years in our sector.
0: Well said, and it's interesting. I do want to talk a bit about the housing crisis because that seems to be very much front and center for everybody and every demographic all across the country. But there is no doubt, as you mentioned, the COVID. Challenge was a very difficult challenge for all of us, you know, for profit and nonprofit, but especially those I think we're leading organizations that depend on uh, the generosity of those, you know, in our community. Now, you're right. Every, I've had many guests on the show that talk about this, and, and definitely the trend showed that charitable giving was up, which is tremendous. Um, but However, this, I'd say the end of last year and the beginning of this year so far, that trend's starting to go maybe back to normal or back down, thinking, hey, we're past the COVID crisis. I really gave some extra to support my favorite nonprofit or, Habitat for whatever organization they love. But now I need to get back to normal giving because I've heard that now that that now the question will be, how will this year be? Will people continue to be quite as generous as they've been the last two years? Leadership is so critical and a crisis can really test our leadership, right? And I know Habitat for Humanity faced many challenges during these last couple of years. So maybe you could talk about what was your biggest leadership lesson going through COVID?
1: You we know, reinforced a couple of things. One, from the challenge side, the need for housing exploded. The cost of housing yeah. exploded. You had supply chain challenges. Suddenly, everybody wanted more housing. So all of that went the wrong direction. And though it's, it's actually a small percentage of the families we touch, our volunteer work had to stop altogether. And our retail stores, which are an important uh, source of revenue for our, especially our U.S. and Canadian affiliates. Uh, All shut down for 60 to 90 days, and uh, and so and then slowly ramp back up after that. So there was a huge shock at Mm -hmm. the front end. I would say that you know the first lesson reinforced one of my favorite leadership lessons, which is we should be religious about our principles, but not our tactics. And Mm -hmm. we had to go virtual almost instantly. We had to help our affiliates and country programs think about how do you do construction in different ways. How do you continue to help families in a context suddenly and so. You know, we had affiliates very quickly pivoting to building with only those weekly volunteers that are almost like staff with their professional staff and with contractors uh, rather than the traditional way of building with Habitat, thinking about how to be safe and pivot in in an uncertain time. And I think the other side to me, which so many people have said, is, is that don't waste a crisis. So how do you, given you've got the crisis, how do we then use the sense of urgency to do things maybe that would be hard to do when you don't have a crisis. So we started to think deeply about, can we now build the infrastructure? One of the the big themes for us is, can we build more? But we know that as many Habitat, we helped about 7 million people last year globally, but we'll never build enough to solve the housing crisis. So we need to build more, but also influence more. And this really was a, a real push to help our countries and affiliates uh, dive even deeper into advocacy and to think about how do we make markets work better for low-income families, and really thinking about impacting the housing ecosystem. And so, I think the the using the crisis to to do hard things is an opportunity that comes out of these tough times.
0: You know, it's interesting you mention that because there's it's true we didn't just face a health challenge or a revenue challenge or a staffing shortage challenge. Additionally, it seems like we're definitely in the midst, in America anyway, a very divisive time in our country. just feels like we're getting more and more divided, and social media probably is part of that reason. But uh, as we face that, I think good for our listeners to hear, because Habitat, I think automatically people think, oh, you build lots of homes all over the world, but you do a lot more than that. You talked about the advocacy piece. You do a lot more. And so I thought it'd be interesting to hear more about the role that uh, nonprofit leaders can serve when it comes to being bridge builders in our communities, particularly during times where we're feeling like we're getting more divisive. I know Habitat has done quite a bit of that. Could you speak to that in general, how nonprofit leaders can do that? And then how specifically is Habitat doing that?
1: This is a, a passion area for me. and I'm, I'm so glad you asked about it. It is, um, I actually gave a, a public lecture on this in the fall in, in Minneapolis, and it's easy to diagnose. And then the question is, what do we do about it? So first, very quickly on the diagnosis side, if you're a politician or you're in the media, you actually get paid and rewarded for making people scared and afraid. So the political system and the media system are both driving people out to the edges and creating division. And I think civil society and the nonprofits um, are somewhat the antidote to that. And and my comment is that service, community service really is the antidote to polarization. And while Habitat is a housing organization, for those of you, uh, your listeners who've ever been out on Habitat Build site, I think that experience on the Build site uh, or so many other worthy service experience out in the community is what community is supposed to feel like, but too rarely does. And we've got so many people now, especially with COVID, who are sitting at home and getting more and more anxious and, and more disconnected from their community, and then bombarded with messages about how the people who are of the other political party or who are different are not just different, they're they're bad, they're, they're terrible. And um, in the preface to, to my book, Shameless Plug, um, President Carter, who's one of my heroes in this space, wrote about how after a natural disaster, you know, you don't care if the person rescuing you is of a different faith, of a different gender, of a different religion or ethnicity. You're thrilled they're there to help. And his comment is, why can't we be like that without the typhoon, hurricane, earthquake, or war and treat each other? And, you know, when I first got involved with Habitat, I was was working for the Walt Disney Company, uh, gosh, a very long time ago, 1992, I think, and we sponsored houses in Orlando, Florida. And you know, I had Disney would spend lots of money on what I would call artificial team building, but the experience of coming out with my team and spending a day, uh, putting siding on a house alongside the, the family that was going to purchase that home was such a powerful experience. And mm. then, you know, many of us then came back and kept volunteering because it is, I do think when you're serving together, you focus on what you have in common as yeah. opposed to well what separates you. And I have a joke. I have built with, uh, blacks and whites in South Africa. I've built with Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, wow. Hindus and Muslims in India, Christians and Muslims in Egypt. I have even built with Democrats and Republicans. So it shows you know, anything, is, uh, <laughs> anything is possible. possible. But well, I do think it's when you serve that you create the basis for trust and relationship. And then you can have hard conversations about difference. Then you can, and you learn, but it creates that space for relationship. And so actually Habitat is, was asked by the White House, along with the YMCA, and interfaith America, and now we've added Catholic Charities to create an intentional program called A Nation of Bridge Builders. Mm. And we hope to actually widen the net as and once we get it started, but a commitment to use the work we already do with even more intentionality to build bridges. So in Habitat's case, we'll use our AmeriCorps, we'll use our interfaith work, and we'll use our, our specifically our work around race and bridging around racial difference, add more intentionality so that as people have that volunteer opportunity, We also want to create dialogue in ways that actually help advance bridging, because I do think this is desperately needed in our society.
0: Well, well said. I would love, definitely curious to hear more how that develops. Uh, So congratulations to be a part of that and be invited to help form that. Well, Habitat, you know, and even as I say the name, uh, that has one of the strongest brands of all nonprofit organizations in America. And I would say probably even in the world. And yet I know that your goal has been to continue to expand and grow Habitat's mission and impact. In other words, when you came into your role, you didn't just want to settle in and say, hey, we've already, we've kind of made it. We're there. People know about us, that we have a good brand. Um, You've really tried to, through your uh, connectivity, your resilience, and your partnership—you've really tried to inspire further growth in the organization. So, talk a bit about that. How did you go about doing that? And what were some of the key decisions that have led to your success so far?
1: You know, I, it's hard to believe this is year eighteen, but um, wow, okay, it has been a joy being part of Habitat. And the first, I just did an awful lot of listening, and uh, it was interesting. When I showed up, I had my hundred-day plan. I was going to go around the world. I was going to meet. And then about five days before I was officially supposed to uh, join, Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S. So my plan went out the window. But in some ways, the combination of that plus the tsunami in Asia for our conversation around COVID forced us to do things we wouldn't naturally have been able to do. Suddenly, instead of building a few houses in in thousands of locations around the world, we needed to build a lot in a few locations. And that forced us to think very differently about how to build and scale and, and the work where we helped about 25,000 families after the tsunami wow. and where we were for many years, the largest home builder in the Gulf coast after Katrina taught us a lot about scaling. And then we tried to, how do we take those lessons when you're allowed in a crisis to do things that might've been culturally taboo uh, without a crisis. And then the next step was in a way changing our framing question. And the, our very good framing question was how many houses can we build? Well, we changed to was what would it take to meaningfully reduce the housing deficit in every geography that we serve, which is a much more scary question, but then forced us really to think, okay, to really, if we're serious about that, we've got to build relationships with the government and change land use and change property rights. We've got to work with the private sector for financing and and building at scale. We've got to think about solving market barriers that have actually stopped uh, low-income families from being able to upgrade and improve their own housing. So that led us first into a huge advocacy effort around property rights, especially for women and disadvantaged groups around the world. That then led to our big bet, which was to get the microfinance industry to start lending to very low-income families for home improvement. These are families that wouldn't have enough income for even a two dollars or $3,000 mortgage in a place like Cambodia or Malawi, but uh, could afford, if they could get it, uh, a small loan that might let them get a, c- a cement floor for the first time instead of a dirt floor, get a proper roof get water sanitation for their home, get an extra room so the girls and boys could be separated and maybe run a small business out of that on the side. And we did experiments with that, lending our own capital and training microfinance banks. Then we raised a wholesale fund that actually just won a major award from the United Nations for one of the most effective development. Uh, This, we raised a hundred million dollar fund that's directly helped a million families get home improvements, but also leveraged hundreds of millions of dollars of additional capital and really started to demonstrate that there's a market for the microfinance industry in housing. Um, so that's been exciting. And then we jumped to the next step of the value chain, and we've been working around skilled labor and building materials. So the goal would be, if you're a family now, you can have the right to stay on your land, you can have access to a loan, and then how do you get value for money with the money you borrow so that you could actually do a good home improvement? We're testing still, but we're in, in Kenya and Philippines, we're actually uh, running a home, a home improvement TV show. To teach families about how you might do home improvement we found that was actually a more effective way than trying to directly train people and we have been working with uh, in mexico we have an app that allows people to identify and rate local masons so they can figure out who's a good local mason or contractor to hire so we've been trying to learn but with our center for innovation and shelter and our tech accelerators we've actually been investing with and supporting entrepreneurs who are coming up with new building products that are better products for for the low-income families who are trying to serve. So that is not instead of our traditional home building work, but it's a way that's that's in a way how we went from helping thousands to helping millions per year.
0: We'll be right back. The Nonprofit Leadership Podcast is supported by First Republic Bank. With First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who will sit down and learn about you and your goals. You're then connected with specialists and solutions you may not have considered. Isn't it time you align yourself with a bank that believes in you and your future success? Learn more at firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology tools and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology, strategy, and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now's the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom-line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations, from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you would like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, Please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash investing. Again, that's amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofit investing. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member F-I-N-R-A and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. Well, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you will find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. And when you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community. Just look for the subscribe button, which is on the top right hand side. It's a real easy process. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Very impressive how you like say scaled it and provided some really creative ways to do that. No, very impressive. Well, and then adding to some good news to you, uh, last spring, I learned that Habitat was the recipient of a $436 million, I'll say it again, $436 million gift from Mackenzie Scott. I know that was, uh, got quite a bit of uh, PR around that. Congratulations, first of all, that's huge. That is a wonderful gift. And I know Mackenzie Scott has been super generous. I've had multiple actually guests on the show who've been recipients of her as well. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, for example, now it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime gift, though, for any organization, particularly um, you know, medium to smaller uh, organizations. You know that would be unheard of, right? So I'm curious for you. Obviously, you're a big organization, but even for you, that's a large gift. How has that changed your organization, and how have you managed that gift so far?
1: Yeah, thank you. Obviously, we are incredibly grateful, and that vote of confidence. You know, as I told our network, this just shows how important housing is. That. Uh, that uh, Miss Scott would identify and give her largest gift to date to affordable housing, and then obviously it's a great vote of confidence that when she wanted to help affordable housing, she picked Habitat. The that's the wonderful news. This the about of the four thirty six four hundred twenty five went directly to eighty four of our affiliates, and so for each of those affiliates, it's the biggest gift they've ever gotten, and it's unrestricted, which is quite extraordinary. Oh, fantastic so high betting, and then these big unrestricted gifts, which allows them actually think about the kind of change I was just talking about. So now if you're in this market, not just how many more houses can we build, how could we be a force for affordable housing in, the, in this market, in this city, and start to think about some of the, uh, you know, so often nonprofits are chasing and never can invest upfront. And there, you know so well, Rob, the, the nonprofit starvation cycle where you're punished for investing in people or systems and you're rewarded only for outputs. Yeah. And, uh, and this allows, I think for that group to to really build strategic plans to, uh, to not just build more, but, but have that higher level of influence, which is really exciting. Now there's a, a slight piece, which many of my federated friends know too. That also means, you know, 90% of the habitat affiliates did not get a giant gift. So there was some, <laughs> right. Some sadness there. Um, and then 25 million came directly to HFHI, which again, extraordinary. And yeah. what we are using that for is to, really help the system move and grow so some needed it's kind of infrastructure investments that, we're, that are hard to raise funds for. We have a, a major initiative that's a huge equity issue around advancing black home ownership in America. And there's a long, painful history around uh, discrimination in housing, and we wanna be a piece of that. And we're investing and accelerating a campaign that we had already started called Cost of Home, which is really trying to bring awareness and action at the state, local, and federal level around better housing policy, So those are a few of the things that that we are directly investing in or able to do faster. I think we would have done all these things, but we can do them faster with this wonderful injection.
0: That's, no, thank you for sharing that. And what um, I can tell just that you're very thoughtful and um, uh, it's interesting you mentioned a couple of things there, but I thought 25 million to really invest in some of the infrastructure and things that are so critical to the success long-term of your organization, but it's hard to fundraise for. You're right. I mean, I I know of every small to medium size and even large nonprofits, it's difficult often to uh, invest in staff, invest in capacity building, infrastructure for your organization. And yet those are the very things that often help you scale and move forward and really um, go to another level with your nonprofit. So I'm impressed you did that.
1: It's, it's where, if I can just add to that, Rob, it's, it's one of my observations, having spent first part of my career in the private sector and then moving into church work and then coming to Habitat. In the private sector, I, I, my whole career was growing new businesses and big companies. And we would launch a new business and we would build the leadership team for what that business was going to become. And in the nonprofit sector, you're always chasing. And you, it's very tough to afford to invest in the leadership that you need for the level of growth. And, you know, the reality is every time you double in size, you need a different level of leadership. So you've got to invest in your current people and help them grow. And you've got to be able to attract new people as well. Very tough in the nonprofit sector to be able to afford to do that. So these really strategic investors like Mackenzie Scott, I think are forward looking around, Pick good quality organizations and then investing give them the flexibility uh, to invest where they most need to take the next step forward.
0: Love that. No, well said. And I think that is something we've had multiple conversations with various guests on the show about that very thing. And so I'm glad you are doing that. You're practicing it. and, And it's good just to continue to get that out there, that that is something, particularly for donors, that is so important to nonprofits. And so those unrestricted gifts are so critical. Well, as you think about this year, and as we've talked about the housing situation, it does seem like the housing crisis really has hit everybody, every city, every state. And so it's a big deal and it's on people's minds. And I think the housing crisis uh, ends up impacting so many other things. So, one of the things I think I mentioned before the show started, you know, I lead a nonprofit that we serve two food pantries that we offer, and we serve people who really do need food, but they're maybe when the root issue is they can't afford the housing and the housing continues to go up. And so rent is going up and, and just the ability to buy a house is like almost becoming impossible in certain pockets. And so that housing crisis impacts their entire financial portfolio, so to speak, and impacts their entire life and their entire family. Uh, You obviously have a huge impact on millions of people uh, when it comes to housing. So as you think about this year, when it comes to the most important aspects of Habitat's work and priorities in 2023, how are you seeing improvement in the near future for the housing crisis? And what are you doing to really alleviate that?
1: Yeah, it is. So So, first, to emphasize the point you made, which is, is it's all so interconnected. And we certainly would never argue housing is the only need, but in many ways, housing is a prerequisite for so many other things. If, if a child doesn't yeah. have stable, safe, and affordable housing, then she doesn't stay healthy. She doesn't do well in school. There's That's a right. whole series of negatives. So it is a, such a critical building block. And, and actually Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies just came out with their most recent data, and it's so sobering. It's the worst in U.S. history for families being cost burdened. Over half oh, wow. of American families are paying more than of their income on rent or mortgage, meaning they're having to make incredibly difficult choices about what they don't have money for, health, education, and and all the other needs. And so we have a huge supply problem. After 08, we underbuilt as a country for a decade. And now, depending on which study you you pick, we are between three and 6 million units short of housing. And, wow. uh, and and zero rates actually created distortion where the private markets started buying up housing. Everybody suddenly wanted more housing during COVID. And we saw um, not just the sort of crazy markets, the New York and California and Hawaii, but suddenly the Charlottes and Atlantas and Dallases and Tampas uh-huh. that were historically very affordable markets, they went up 30 to 50% in two years. So wow. shocking increases, wow. which again, if you already owned your home, you're celebrating for everybody else, it's, uh, it's really a disaster. And then the supply chain issues actually stopped us from building as much as we should have been building even during it. And then now as interest rates have gone up, um, that has dramatically worsened the affordability because uh, there aren't enough entry-level houses, the prices are too high, and then if, instead right. of a 3% mortgage, it's a 6% mortgage, that's actually a, a 30 or 40% increase in your monthly cost of housing. So you put that together, and the answer is we have got to build much more. So our first priority, not just for Habitat, uh, but for the whole sector, is we've got to build more housing at the entry level and workforce and affordable levels. And so my challenge to all our U.S. affiliates in the U.S. context is we, we need to come up in your in your local community, come up with a plan to double your own production because we've got to build more. But that will be insufficient. Double your own production and how you're going to be a partner and catalyst in your community and market. significantly growing the overall supply of housing because we need more supportive housing rental housing habitats particular niche is affordable home ownership and we need more of that Um, so many young families there just is no inventory that they can uh, that they can access or afford so our hope is with the market now slowing down because rates have gone up that there might be an opportunity there's capacity in the market but can we get the math to work and it's going to take probably cities subsidizing land and then developers can make the math work to come in and build affordable housing with uh, nonprofits like Habitat. So we have a number of federal initiatives as well as local and state uh, that we hope could start moving the needle for both preservation of housing and the creation of lots of new housing. So that was a long answer.
0: No, I, you have that sounds very good. I mean, I've had so many conversations with our local community, mayors, city council, county council um, about these issues. And I like what I'm hearing. That sounds like you really, again, are providing a lot of different uh, layers of support and um, both on the advocacy side again, and, and also literally building uh, homes for families. And this next question, I thought it, it could relate to habitat, but I'm thinking even broader now as we think about looking on the horizon, say the next year to three years, when it comes to the nonprofit sector in general as a whole, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing the nonprofit sector?
1: You know, I, I think and it's interesting. I, I chair a group of the CEOs of the largest US nonprofits and Uh, we've been talking a lot, I think multiple challenges. One is cost of good staff has Mm. skyrocketed in the last few years. So, so in a way the costs have gone up and the need has gone up and the great fear in suddenly an uncertain economic environment is, uh, is, is there'll be a squeeze where governments are asking nonprofits to do more and more, but then not, not coming in with the investments to make that possible. So in some ways, I think that's front and center. I actually okay. think it intersects with some of the cultural things that we talked about a little bit earlier on the show, yeah. which is there are a couple of trends that are a little concerning. More giving has been is happening the last number of years, but it's by fewer and fewer people. I think that's a bad sign for civic, you know, for the long term. And civic participation is down, and people are feeling more lonely, more divided, more separated. So I think in some ways. It's both the opportunity, but a desperate need is how do we increase civic participation, increase engagement, and get people out in their communities in a way that that helps them to see the need and be part of it. And, and certainly housing, I think the place housing intersects with this is where housing is, it's also critically important. And we know the data is so clear that mixed income, mixed use is the right way for cities to work. And historically, the way they work, it's a relatively recent phenomenon that we've become so economically segregated. And that is a racial correlation. But in some ways, the the big risk now is um, we're creating this permanent economic divide, and that's not going to be good for society long term. So how do we think about making sure that the American dream really is accessible for everybody? And that's going to take all the different parts and pieces. But it's particularly important that we think about how do we make sure that this housing is affordable in communities of opportunity? If we did that well, then people wouldn't actually fight gentrification as hard because there'd be more, uh, they'd have more options. And then hopefully when people get engaged in the community, that's how hearts get changed because then it's not those people, it's relationship. Then you might say yes, in my backyard, as opposed to our incredibly bipartisan view that, uh, that nothing should be built near my house uh, <laughs> Right? Exactly. I'm in favor of affordable housing somewhere else. And, and you'd see it, uh, Certainly in, in Park City, what a good example. The resort areas are really tough. And ultimately, yeah. it's an economic block. You can't hire people if they can't get housing. That's right. And so, so I do think it's where I'm now hearing from mayors, which is very different than five or 10 years ago, that number one we're tied for number one with crime, housing's top of their agenda right now yes. because, of, because of these issues. It's complex and expensive. So I, I didn't mean to delve back into housing, but I do think no. it's going to be um, in suddenly a time where federal spending is likely to get squeezed because debt service is going to eat up more and more of the federal budget. And that may translate if we have suddenly a slower economy, states have been awash in federal funding, that's going to start sliding down. So I think the funding pieces are is going to be a huge issue for the nonprofit sector. And then I think the second step, which may be the opportunity as well, is the lines are blurring. And I do mm. think the nonprofit sector it's an opportunity now to think about impact at a higher scale, and and I think it's needed. How does the the, you know, how can we make sure the nonprofit sector has a full seat at the table with the private sector and the and the public sector? Because these complex issues can't be solved by any one sector.
0: Quick side note: um, I've helped put together a um, mountain town coalition of nonprofits that are based in mountain towns, specifically because there are so many during COVID. Is when I reached out to various leaders and. I mentioned that it's because the housing issue, as you mentioned, was a common denominator. Now, initially it was COVID. How do we respond to COVID? Getting food to people, providing mental health counseling, but housing was this huge issue. And like you said, it's becoming such a big deal in every single mountain town, every resort town in the country. But what's interesting, it's almost like a microcosm of what's going on in the country as a whole. And so, uh, you know, sometimes when you have a little bit of a smaller population area, like we do in this mountain town, if you can get your hands around it, sometimes that gives some ideas to how you can scale that in bigger cities. So all to say, Interesting what you're doing. I think my listeners are going to be very interested in finding out a little bit more about you and, of course, about Habitat. So, how can they do that? What's the best way for them to connect with you and find out more about Habitat for Humanity?
1: Well, thanks, Rob. I think the fastest is go if you go to habitat.org, you can see both learn more about the issues and what we're working on, but also learn more about the organization and learn how you can get involved. And uh, I think one of the, the myths of Habitat, um, I always laugh about what people don't know. Everyone thinks Habitat, and I think Jimmy Carter, who clearly sure. put Habitat on the map. And they think we give away houses. So uh, the reality is President Carter did put us on the map, but did not start, nor does he run Habitat.
0: Though,
1: uh, <laughs> he is my hero. Second, we don't give away the houses. I think if people don't know, I think what has been core to making Habitat successful over the years is that the families partner with Habitat. And that yeah. means they put in sweat equity, helping build their homes and their neighbor's homes. They take classes in financial management and home maintenance. And then they demonstrate clean credit and the ability to pay back an affordable mortgage that's tagged at no more than 30% of their income. And that's why we've had such extraordinarily low foreclosure rates over the years. And and what we've seen is not everybody should own a home, but in many ways, owning a home has been that power move that's allowed, especially low-income and low-income minority families, to build an intergenerational asset over time. And that's been powerful. But it is um, but I would certainly agree too that this is this is one piece. The other the other myth I think is that the only way to help is to come out and, and bang nails. And we love, yeah. you know, do come out and have that community experience, but we also Mm -hmm. need skilled volunteers and we need Mm -hmm. financial help and legal help and accounting help and uh, family uh, consulting and retail help and all the other pieces. So I certainly would welcome, uh, welcome folks getting involved.
0: Well, again, Jonathan, thank you for taking time to be on the show. Thanks for your leadership too, for all you're doing. You're truly impacting millions of people all over the world. So I appreciate you taking time and again, sharing your insights with us. It's a pleasure, Rob, great to be with you. You bet.